Outrocast. How is your day going aside from being in an executive suites in and talking to this guy? Yeah, I think we're I think we're right outside of DC today. So uh this is about as good as it gets because everything's very expensive around here. But um, it is. It's one of those cities that's expensive, DC, that people don't talk about being expensive, hence all the lobbyists being there, et cetera. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about you and your greatness here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Blue October, Harvard of the South, you as you know, a sideman for a trillion things, you as a producer and a songwriter, your own band, et cetera. How do you want to be identified at this point in time? Do we just say that musician guy? That's a really good question, man. I, I feel like I wear a lot of hats and I don't know what the 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 right title for that is. So like I always, whenever I do a, like a speaking event or something like that, they're like, okay, well, what do we put on your name tag? And I'm like, oh, I'm a musician, I guess. I don't know, you know? So I actually do a little bit of management as well. I'm getting, getting my feet back into that again. So, um, man, I, I don't know. Music business. Music, Music business guy. And when it comes to you as a producer, you know, you're very prolific. I say that because the average, if you look at, say, a Desmond Child producer discography, you'll see one album a year. In your case, (laughs) while doing Blocktober, there's like five to eight a year. So is it the second that you're not on the road, you're back in the studio? Yeah, I don't. And I and I always joke about this, but it's it, it really is the truth. I don't have any hobbies. I just don't, you know, like I, I, I like to kayak uh, and I have three kids, which is awesome. So I spend as much time with my kids as I possibly can. But I just I, I tend to be a workaholic when I get home. I always joke that when I'm on tour or I'm like, oh, let's book a tour so I can get some rest, you know, so I can sleep in a little bit. When I'm home, there's no rest at all, because if I don't have my kids not up at 6 a.m., you know, and then head into the studio, like I don't know what to do with myself. I go out of my skull, honestly. So. I love staying busy. And I, and not only that, like, I think that if it were, if it all felt like work, it might be different, but making records is what I consider fun. You know, that's what I would do. If I had a nine to five job, I would, at five 30, I would be going to have fun and make records afterwards. So I just happen to be able to be like lucky enough to do it for a living, you know? Well, to name check your bandmate, uh, one Steve Schiltz, yes. you know, the story goes that he took his royalties from the Twilight New Moon soundtrack and then invested in a bunch of gear. In your case, when did you get all the gear to be able to have your own studio? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really blessed in that department. So my, I have a partner with the studio at Award Recording Studios in Austin. Um, and he and I, so when we kind of built our, put our vision together and started talking about this, like, geez, now it's been, it was 11, 12 years ago, you know, when the, like, kind of the idea started forming. He really believed in what the idea was and seeing me produce so much and seeing me work with so many artists that he was really willing to put a lot of resources into it. And then I kind of was, you know, my role was really at the beginning was like, hey, I'm going to really figure out how to sort of, you know, crack the code and get our name out there and and kind of get established and make sure that the first year really gets us on the map, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really difficult to do. It's not easy to do. A lot of things kind of fell in our favor the first year for sure, which helped us launch, but I just got really lucky in that sense where I, I wasn't pressured necessarily to like, oh, I got to completely like drain my savings and do everything I can to, you know, build the studio and build this thing up. And but in that regard, over the 10 years that we've been open, it's there's been a lot of pressure to like, you know, keep it going and make sure because there's so much maintenance with the studio gear breaks. Yeah. 
especially vintage gear, you know? So if we don't stay busy, we can't fix things. We can't do those things. So it's been a balancing act for sure, you know, just making sure that everything's flowing and it's moving in a, like in a good way. But I got really lucky, you know, I really did. And I admire Steve's story so much because it's true. <laughs> it's hundred percent true. And I love that. I love that he just like bet on himself a hundred percent, you know? Yeah. In the case of your studio, is it a mix of digital and analog or mostly digital? No, it's a mix for sure. In fact, we have what's kind of unique about us is we have three different rooms. So a lot of studios are like, we have one, you know, we have like, or maybe two rooms. We have one or two rooms. We have, you know, a console in this room and then a different console in this room. And this has this vibe and this has this vibe. And, and there's some studios that do that and they do it very well. But what I like about our studios, to me, it's kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. You know, it's like you have three different sizes with different things to offer. And it's like one step up, you know, and, but, but they're all like kind of appropriate for what the artist is and what the artist wants to do because you know that in this day and age a producer is not what a producer was 20 years ago it's not right you know i'm gonna hire a band and we're all gonna set up and you know spend three hours getting tones and a lot of times now we have producers that come in and they bring their laptop in and they've got you know an ableton you know session set up and ready to go and they're doing vocals so we have an a room a b room and a c room and they're all different sizes and they have completely different vibes from one to the next and so I think that that's been good because when people come and see it in person, they're like, oh, this, like it has sort of has something to offer everybody. Yeah. You know, instead of just like, hey, it's just this one thing. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. All said, well, speaking of different vibes, you're one of the few people whose discography includes both Bumblefoot and DMC. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. I, oh, man. I don't even know where to start with that. Like, first of all, DMC. I grew up on Run DMC. I used to drive like crazy. There's DMC like uh, dolls about. Oh yeah, that way. Yeah, Funko Pops. You got the Funkos of DMC. That's great. Are they the? Uh, they're they're like little. I don't know if they're the Funko Pops, yeah. but it was a good promo item. But uh, Daryl's the nicest. Oh he's, my god, he's the and, best. Yeah. He's the sweetest guy ever. He really is. He's like such a humble genuine guy like he really kind of just gives you hope like working with somebody that legendary and seeing like man this guy is just such a sweetheart you know like really makes you realize that there are good people in the business you know and, and yeah. there's there's just hope you know so working with him was was definitely like i okay i can die now kind of moment you know like i, I I'm, I'm good you know um i actually gave me one of his hats Oh. And I have it above, like when you walk into the office at the studio, I have it hanging up right next to a picture of the two of us together. And that to me is like, I'm just so proud of that. I love like being able to work with him. And I had my buddy Kenny Olsen come in and play guitar on the song and they knew each other from back in the day. And then Bumblefoot, I actually produced, uh, he played on a song for me, for my, so for my uh, record that I'm doing with my friend, uh, Alan Adams called Icarus Bell. He played a solo. And then he also, he and I produced uh, a two piece Israeli band together and called Dodies, and it was such a cool experience because he's such a cerebral kind of quiet but then when he says something it's so profound that you're like man i've been talking for 20 minutes and not saying anything you know this guy's just brilliant so being able to work with both those guys honestly like just really really crowning achievements honestly did you ever hear bumblefoot's alter ego the lounge singer i think his name is checkers no, I'm not familiar. You're giving me some material I got to go check out. This is great. Yeah, he uh, he played for me 
some lounge tribute albums that he'd done. I don't know if they were commercially released or thing, but it was him singing Miss Jackson by Outkast, but as a crooner. Oh, so is it like a Richard Cheese kind of? Kind entirely of- a Richard Cheese and you'd never think that he has that kind of sense of humor or yeah. musicality but he can sing that guy everyone oh, talks about him as a shredder but drummer singer no he's phenomenal he um in fact I've seen some videos of him doing some when he did some stuff with Toto and he yeah. was doing some vocals and guitars and I was just like this guy's unreal man he's so talented he's so good and and again a really genuine down-to-earth humble dude you know, so it must be an East Coast thing. Well, you're originally from Michigan, right? And then you moved I, down to Texas for Blue October? I did, yeah. I uh, I kind of just said F it and packed up my little Volkswagen car and moved down there because I saw the band live and I was just blown away. You know, it's like, you know, when people ask about, when people get in the music business and they ask about, like, whether they're an artist or a manager or whatever, they... I think that they ask questions sometimes if if they're if they need a mentor looking for logical answers. And sometimes you can't give people logical answers because it's just not a logical business. It's all based on instincts. It's all just based on a feeling, you know? And so to me, when I saw the band, I just knew it was something special. And I just knew, like I had that kind of, that was an intangible thing that I was like, I can't tell you exactly what it is. I can't put it into words. But I just know that this is a, like a genuine, a real artist singing from the heart. And this is something that I got to be a part of. I just, I have to do this, you know? So I broke my lease and I moved down and I've been there ever since. So Blue October w- is a newish discovery for me. I think five, six years ago, I saw you at the Highline Ballroom in New York City. And that is a venue that maybe at its best holds 1,800 people. And there's probably... 2200 people in that venue and then you look and you go wait this is an arena band in some parts of the country a theater band in other parts of the country is it every gig you kind of don't know what to expect at this point whether it's an arena or a theater it's funny that you say that because the last show we did we've been doing uh theaters the last tour and this tour mostly seated very beautiful venues you know kind of historic theaters with a really just kind of, you're trying to get a similar vibe from show to show. And then the last show we did was all general admission standing rock show, you know, where everybody's like this and, you know, pressed up against the barricade again. And it was like, oh yeah, Yeah. we do this sometimes too, you know? So um, it's, I feel like that's one thing about us though, is we have so much material and we have such a kind of a theatrical vibe already that it really translates to those shows. We can definitely do the festival rock thing. We can, we've played arenas, we've done, you know, opening for big acts, uh, played for like six, 70,000 people in Quebec or something, this out, you know, outdoor, uh, actually we did it twice. And once was with Kiss and it was just like, you know, it was people as far back as you can see. And I feel like we really held our own and we did really well, but I gotta say that the theater vibe is probably my favorite. I, it took some adjustments to like, okay, people are seated, they're not going nuts. Of course, people in the front are standing and by the end, everybody's standing, but I love the whole, just being able to put on a show without it having to be super high energy all the time. It can kind of take you through all the emotions and be, you know, more of a roller coaster, you know, which right. I, I really do. Is it true from hanging out with uh, Gene Simmons that when you go with Gene, you get the green? It's a hundred percent true. Gene is not a kid. Char- that's not a character, man. That's who he is. Like, 
it's who he is. And yeah. I grew, you know, I'm 47. I have a brother, an older brother who's a drummer. He's four years older than me. So like every Halloween picture is we're all we're Kiss, we're members of Kiss, whatever. Like it was Kiss cereal and Kiss dolls, and you know I remember yeah. getting this car. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but Michigan was the first state to embrace Kiss, not New York. Cadillac, Michigan, man, they played yeah. the the high school prom or or homecoming or something, and yeah. you, and you'll go into restaurants in Cadillac and they have pictures from that in the '70s all over the place, you know. So. Um, it was, it was just such a, like a way of life. It was just such a cultural phenomenon growing up. Like Kiss was so much, so bigger than everything grown. Like when I was a kid that when we played with them, it carried so much weight. So the first thing I did, I stood, I met Doc McGee, who is awesome. Met Paul Stanley, met all the other guys. And then Gene and I talked and they were having some sound issues. So they went on like 15 minutes late. So I'm talking to Gene in full costume for like 15 minutes before it goes on the whole time. I'm just like, just try, just act normal, just act normal, just act normal. And then the conversation ends. And the first thing I did is I beelined it to the dressing room and I called my brother. And I was like, I just got done having a 15 minute conversation with Gene Simmons in full costume. And he was like, I hate you. <laughs> you don't deserve that. <laughs> but it was, it was amazing. And he's so larger than life. You know, it's just like, that's who he is. You go with Gene, you get the green. You know, it's like he's got like a he rhymes constantly. It's crazy. So that story has been substantiated. Thank you very much for that. And so yeah, it's true. <laughs> but Blue October, it's impressive how busy the band has been over the last five, six years. There's been a live album and or a studio album every year. Now, if there's 13 songs on a Blue October record, did you write 13 or is it pared down from 20 ish? Oh, it's always pared down. Always. Yeah, no, we've never, you know, and I've done a lot of records. I've produced a lot of albums where it's like, guys, we need one more song. We need one more song. It is the polar opposite with Blue October. And that's because there's always so much material. I mean, and especially now more than ever, because Justin has a really nice home studio and it's a separate building, you know, separate facility, but it's a beautiful studio. And Eric Holtz, who's kind of, you know, the extra member of our band, is pretty much there every day and they're working constantly. So I, you know, I'll get an email and I'm like, here's like four more demos. And I'm like, Oh my God, these are all amazing. When did you do this? You know, it's like, Oh yeah, hold on. There's four more coming. You know, there's two, Oh, here, here's a file of 10 that I forgot to show you. It's kind of mind blowing. Honestly, it just never ends. The guy just doesn't stop writing, you know? And, and, and when we're on the road, it's same. we'll be in the dressing room and, three, four days in a row, you know, before sound check, he's working on a song, he's in there working on something. So we always have to like, kind of weed out the songs that don't fit that album, what the vibe of that album is, you know, and then go, okay, maybe some of these will save for later, but mm -hmm. get it down to, you know, the proper LPs, whatever that is, 10 songs, 12, 13 songs, whatever it is. And, uh, and then put that album out. COVID presented a whole other thing because there was so much time to write and there's so much time to reflect and there's so much going on that the output was insane. So instead of having, okay, here's an album, we're going to do a regular album cycle tour, then we'll go do another album. We have three parts to this album. We have Spinning the Truth Around Part 1, Part 2, which comes out in October, and then we'll have a Part 3, which are remixes of all these songs from the album. So, I mean, if that's not a testament to the fact that the dude just never stops working, I don't know what is you know yeah it, it's always whittling the songs down for sure 
So you have your studio, he has his studio, Steve has his studio. So it's three proper studios in a band. I don't think most stadium acts have three members with proper studios and, and gear yeah. setups. If we can't come up with enough material for between the three of us, we're just lazy, you know, or just something ain't working, you know. But yeah, there's no, and now with Steve playing with us, you know, full time, like there's definitely no shortage of great material for sure. He's such a, such a prolific writer. So when you write something and it doesn't make the cut in Blue October, does it go in the garbage, the posthumous box set, or does it go to yeah, one of your other I, projects? I would, I would say it does. I try not to like, I. so it's not that I write things with the intention of it being something necessarily. I'll write something and I almost instantly know what it's going to work for. You know, I, I can just tell like right away from the melody or the bass line or the guitar part or whatever it is. I'm like, this fits with my thing. Or this definitely feels like this could be a Blue October song. And generally, I'm not. I'm also not sending you know tons and tons of demos to Justin. I'll know if it feels right. And I and man, I'd say nine times out of ten, we wind up putting it on the album. Like I don't send a lot of material, but I make sure it's the right material, you know. And so it'll it will wind up on the record usually. There's only been maybe a handful of songs that we didn't wind up doing, honestly. Because I, have, I think I have pretty good instincts when it comes to that. Like, I know, like, this this is definitely feels like something Justin's going to dig or he's going to be able to really put a great melody to or whatever that is. Or, you know, he can do the lyrics and, and or he, you know, can write a chorus to the verse or whatever that is. Right. And then I, I know just stylistically, like, this feels more like a like my project kind of thing. Well, I've got three more questions for you. Two are going to be stupid, presumably quick ones. And then the other one. It's your no <laughs> okay. The, here's the first one. Uh, you're a Michigan guy. Are yeah. you one of those interlocking people? Ooh, that's a great. That's not a. Is that one of the stupid questions? Because that's not a stupid question. That's a stupid question because I find regionally, if you were at least halfway talented and you grew up in Michigan, you went to interlocking. Yeah. So okay. So I actually was offered a scholarship to go to interlocking, and I didn't do it. It was not for music. It was for art. It was for graphic or visual art. Sorry. And that's, an, I knew just, I love painting and drawing and, and commercial art, but I also knew that that's not what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So, and I think I had some really stupid reasons too. Like I probably was dating some girl or something. I was like, I can't leave her. I love her. So I stayed at this little Catholic school in Traverse City that I went to. I stayed with my friends and I didn't go. I didn't do it. That was, I was a freshman in high school. Um, and I'm not mad that I did that because I'm very happy with the path that I chose. Right. But right. I, had, I had a lot of friends that went to interlock and the interlock and kids were the super artsy, you know, uh, I, I could go on and on. Oh, in New York, <laughs> yeah. here on Long Island, we have this camp called Usedan, which Mariah Carey went to as a kid and Steve Stevens went to, and it's, it's like a junior interlocking kind of thing. Mm. It's different levels of talented. I get it. It's performing yeah. arts that can be a little smug. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but I did have a lot of friends that went to interlocking and I was like, I felt, you know, uh, like I was exposed to a lot of good music from my interlocking friends because they were like always going against the grain, you know, it was like, oh, we don't listen to Jim Blossoms. That's mainstream, you know, so um, but I, I, but I, I really did. And, and I, and I actually still have a family, uh, our family, my grandparents old house is kind of our shared family spot and it's in interlock. And so I, every summer or every other summer I go up there and I'm, I'm, I'm there, you know, so I'm kind of an interlocking kid to a degree by proxy, you know, but 
Nah, not a hundred percent. This is not the second question there. You just said Jim Blossoms and the wife and I went to the singer's lawn concert. He performs for his neighbors just as oh, a wow. local community gesture. And Jim Blossoms, possibly the greatest mainstream band and the most credible band that yeah. nobody talks about as being a great or a credible band. And great songwriting too, man. A lot of those songs like back in the 90s, I didn't know like, you know, Hey Jealousy songs like that. I was like, I just kind of didn't pay a lot of attention to, and then we did some shows with them. I'm like, oh. hey, these guys are like, yeah, we played some festival shows with them. Super nice dudes. Like very, again, very humble, you know, have been around, you know, have been around the block. They know what they're doing. Um, but really, really nice guys. And I like, I kind of had a whole new appreciation for them after that. I went and did a deep dive and I was like, ah, I was missing out. Two bands that I was really missing out in, in, on in the nineties and probably because they were just everywhere. So I was like, I can't listen to that because right, you're punk rock. Yeah, yeah man, I got to be punk rock. Um, third Eye Blind, Gin Blossoms. And listening back now, I'm like, there are some freaking great songs by both of these bands that I just did not give a chance, and I should have. But not that they needed my extra one album sold. I'm sure they did just fine. Yeah. Well, uh, stupid question number two. Again, Michigan guy, rock guy who can play other genres. Any run-ins with anyone from the Bissonette family? Oh, gosh. You mean like Matt and Greg Bissonette? Matt, Greg. Then I think Kathy's with AEG. And I think there's another musical wow. Bissonette or two out there. I didn't know that. No. So the only reason that I, you know, I, again, I have an older brother and he's a drummer, you know. So I know, you know, David Lee Roth's original, you know, solo band was like one of the greatest bands ever. Billy ever. By Greg Bissonette. So I'm I'm familiar with Greg and Matt just from being, you know, having an older brother who always had his ear to the ground. But other than that, no, I haven't really had any run-ins with them. I'd like to. <laughs> I, I just figured everyone from Michigan knows each other. Forget the fact that it's one of the geographically biggest states in the U.S. You just go, well, I mean, they know Grand Funk Railroad and everyone hangs out and they go to Interlochen. Well, yeah, I actually, so funny Grand Funk Railroad story. If I got time, if that's cool. Sure. So when I was in high school, Battle of Bands was a big deal, right? It was a huge thing. So I was, uh, my band, I don't even know what band it was. Like every band I was in had like the dumbest name ever. So it was just, just pick a dumb name and that's what we were. But, but we did a lot of kind of bass centric material, you know? So it was a lot of Jane's Addiction and Primus and stuff like that. And there was a bass player, really, really nice kid that was in one of the other bands. And he was like, hey man, I really like the way you play. You know, I'd love to sit down and play together sometime. Do you want to come over? It was Mel Shocker's son. Oh. Yeah, and I'm like, and I learned all this later, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm putting two and two together. I'm like, why does this guy have gold platinum records on his wall? And whoa, that's Grand Funk Railroad bass player. And then um, Mark Farner, I think, lived in Traverse City for a while as well. So, you know, yeah. look, the scene is not big. It is a big state, but the music scene is tiny. We all know each other. Everybody knows everybody. You know, from the Verve Pipe guys to the Kid Rock guys to, you know, like everybody just, everybody has crossed paths at some point for sure. And the stupid, uh, non-stupid rather, quick question before I let you go is, what are you plugging besides the new Blue October record and the part three that's coming out in the near future being on tour? Is there anything we should be looking for specifically from you, Matt? Absolutely. So yeah, so obviously our, our record's coming out, you know, next month, and then we'll have the part three coming out. I don't know the date on part three yet, but that should be coming out soon. 
And I finally finished the Icarus Bell record, which is myself and Alan Adams. And then again, Bumblefoot, uh, Lucas Rossi, Static, Jeff uh, oh. Friedel from uh, Perfect Circle plays on a song with us. Um, we have a bunch of our friends that just kind of cam. is Steve Schiltz. A oh. uh, bunch of people cameoed on this record and it's so fun. It was such a fun kind of like, let's just get all of our buddies on these songs and and have fun and kind of it's kind of a throwback to some degree to some of our 90s influences you know so um a lot of like heavy kind of bass and drum work with with the vocals are definitely secondary um but i'm really proud of the record and it's finally done i got the last three songs the vocals finished when i was home before this tour started the last songs are getting mixed right now it's going into mastering and then so i think we're shooting for like december january to put the album out, we're gonna have vinyl. So the Icarus Bell record after four years of trying to squeeze it in between tours is finally done. Really proud of it, can't wait for it to come out. And the best way to find out about the release dates, is it the Instagram, is it the- It would be the Instagram. Facebook? Okay. Yeah, I would say the Instagram. We're not very active on Facebook or anything else. So Alan and I are both a couple, you know, older dudes trying to, trying to, we're, you know, we're both like, how does this work? So uh, our Instagram is definitely like where we would keep everybody, you know, posted. And we do have a Patreon as well. And on our Patreon, we do a lot of engaging with our, our Patreon folks and make sure that they get like exclusive songs that, other people haven't had access to, et cetera. We did a Tori Amos cover, which is really fun. And um, just kind of feeding content to, to them as a thank you for helping us out, you know? Well, I'm not gonna top that. So thank you for your time. Thank you for the many years of great music. Looking forward yeah. to the next gig in the New York area. And just, just keep being mad, will you? Uh, thanks, man. I appreciate it, dude. It's really good talking to you. Thank you. How's your day going aside from doing press and all that? Uh, pretty good. You know, it's uh, it's raining, but can't complain. Quiet. Played golf yesterday, so I feel good yeah. being inside because it was pouring rain yesterday on the course. You mentioned golf. Uh, were you recruited to college because of your golf ability or did you pick that up in college? Uh, well, I, I grew up playing golf, but yeah, I went to school for to play golf on the varsity team, but I wasn't recruited from France. I was just a five handicap, wasn't, you know, top, top level. Wow. So when we go down your list of job titles, I think that qualifies to call you a golfer, but actress, now author, maybe it produced a thing or two, but which of those titles is most important? Is it golfer? <laughs> uh, probably mother and wife, you know, that <laughs> that's what's most important to me, but you can, for you, it might be golfer. No, 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 no. So we were set up to talk about your book, which feeds into being a mother and a wife and a hardworking individual. How long did it take for you to actually write the book? It took me a little bit over a year. It's a workbook, so it's not as in, I think it was a different process than writing, you know, fiction or a memoir. It was a collaborative uh, effort with Given Our Mental Health National Nonprofit that I'm an ambassador with, with a lot of people who helped along the way. Um, so yeah, about a year. So when you started shopping the book, were you shopping it as a workbook or did it evolve into that format? No, it was a workbook from the beginning. The The book came about because I did a series of webinars with Given Our during covid to encourage people to create a playbook for their life 
Uh, this is a, a concept that I used for my own emotional well-being. And mm -hmm. basically what it is, is to have one place for all the things that help you in life. Um, you know, maybe it's your golf swing tips. <laughs> maybe it's notes from therapy. Maybe it's reminders of your greatest achievements. We're all different. We have different things that help us navigate life better. So we brought a series of webinars to people uh, during COVID. And the one question that kept coming up was, what do I put in my playbook? And I kept saying, it's personal. We're all different. And then somebody suggested, why don't you write a workbook to guide people uh, through exercises that would, will help them build the content of their playbook? And we thought it was a great idea. Uh, given our and I. And so we wrote a book proposal and approached agents with that concept. Outrocast. It's the Outrocast now with Darren Paltrowitz. Get ready to listen to your favorite artists. Outrocast. So how's your day going aside from having to do press where you get asked the same questions over and over and over again. Oh, no, it's good. <laughs> good. We just got back from a, a long weekend. So I'm, I'm happy to be back home. It was, uh, we're out in New Jersey and it was, it was raining and miserable. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to be back. We had, we had a big crash and so I'm just happy to be home. A <laughs> uh, crash from weather aside, where in Jersey was that? Uh, Millville. You know where oh, that is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So my we wife's had, a Jersey that, person. So I, whenever I hear Jersey, I have to ask those magic words. And I know that you've, you know, competed at an event or two in Jersey over the years. But are you dialing in from Glendale today or that area? Uh, we actually just moved out to like Temecula area. So, but yeah, we're I'm out in California right now. So yeah, I got back nice. yesterday and yeah. So how yeah, long, you're in the uh, Long Island, New York here? other coast three hours earlier is there a coffee mug at the moment or an energy drink no no not for me we have a i have a two-year-old so i'm used to waking up early and so we, we were up at five o'clock so I'm, I'm good to go <laughs> there you go well we were connected because of the fine folks at OFTV. rising yep. brands the new series premieres today i do believe how long did you have to keep it a secret that you were filming for it uh i don't know if it was you know it wasn't anything that we were holding back everybody in the paddock you know saw it's it's not like uh for our our stuff it's it's all live sports stuff right so we're we're racing there's they had a crew of i think it was like six six guys that showed up at, at my race so it was everybody in the paddock knew about it and and uh yeah heard, heard about it so it's it's neat uh the whole you know oftv crew is uh all the videos we've been putting out it's it's new for all of our series so it's Everybody uh, in our paddock is excited about it because it's it's something new, new platform coming in, and and uh, yeah, so it's it's exciting. How long did you film for? And I ask that because when you watch a twenty-eight minute, thirty-minute TV show, odds are at least eight hours of footage was filmed for it. Yeah, we were uh, man. I think it was four days because our our race weekends are th three days long, uh, actual riding time. And then uh, we have our setup day. And so it was, it was a lot of footage. I know normally, so I put out a video every, every race weekend for OFTV. Um, and my video guy, you know, usually gets uh, somewhere around a terabyte or two terabytes of footage. So it's, it's always a lot of footage to go through. Um, and we, we always have these 20 minute episodes and, and it's uh, this one's a little bit different because it's, 
normally it's just following me where this, this episode is, is a lot different. It, you know, it just speaks with my wife, my father, uh, members on the team. So it's, it's a little bit different, um, perspective where, you know, my video guy has been around for a few years and he's kind of, he knows what it's all about where these, this crew is all new to it. And so they don't know anything. So the questions were, were different, which I like because it kind of informs people really what the sport's about that don't know anything about it. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun to make just because of that reason. Was it a big onboarding or uphill battle for you to learn how to do media? Because Usually the athletic component of what you do has about 0% do uh, 0% in common with talking about what you do. Totally different skill set. Um, no, it's, this is my 18th season of professional racing. So it's, and for us, um, you know, it's kind of like, imagine a UFC fight or something, right? Where if you win, you lose, whatever you're, there's media around it. The, the TV's talking to you. It's not like a football or basketball team where it's like, you have one star that's maybe always getting interviewed and the rest of the guys don't get practice for, for us. It's, you know, since I was a kid, I've been getting interviewed and, and, and I enjoy it. You know, I like, I like talking to the fans. I like talking to media. I like it's, it's enjoyable to me. It's part of the job. And, and it's, I had a teammate at one point that told me, you know, it's not always about winning. It's, it's about, uh, you know, the whole media side of it and, and making yourself available to everybody and, and, you know, just trying to have fun with it. And yeah, that was something I ran with as a kid and, social media wasn't around at the time. And, and, uh, so it, it felt natural. Like the whole thing just feels natural to me and I have fun with it. You make a good point. Now, Michael Venom page aside, who's part of rising grind, I would say ha roughly half the MMA fighters are excellent interviews and half of them are just good fighters. What sells the fight is that. And when <laughs> I say that half of them are great talkers, you talk about somebody like Charles Sonnen, who I've interviewed before, he loses a lot of the fights, but you want to see him because of that. <laughs> now, your particular sport is not a talking-based thing. It's actually based why people want to watch it is what we're seeing on the course. That's the excitement right there. That's where I was going with the were the interviews hard because it's the exact opposite of selling a fight, in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, for me though, I, I've always been kind of loved and hated kind of for the same things that you're talking about. When I come in from, let's say there's a crash on the track. I'm the one who just speaks my mind. I say what I, I have to say, because to me, it's like, I can hate whoever I'm riding against for an hour. And like, it's okay. If later on, we just forget about it. Like I, I can be pissed like Saturday, you know, we were having a bad weekend and, and Saturday I got taken out by another rider and it's, I'm, I'm pissed. I want to, I want to choke the guy out when it happens. Right. But then an hour later I could care less. Like, it's 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 just in that moment but when you get a camera shoved in your face right after it happens you don't want to lie and just say oh yeah everything's fine like no the guy just cost me the race and cost me a lot of money and you know i'm pissed about it and you know sometimes say things maybe that don't come off um super nice but it's it just is what it is right not we're not a. Uh, I don't know why in our sport it's like everybody wants to just be nice to each other all the time and sing kumbaya and and a lot of fans hate that. They don't, they don't, they don't want to see that. They want to see the action, but then the people all, also on the other side of the fence, they, they want to see the professional side of it. And they, they don't think you should be saying anything bad about your competitors or, and so I, I get a lot of hate for it because, you know, I, I just speak my mind. <laughs> wow. Well, I'd imagine having the two-year-old change <laughs> a little bit towards being able to let things go an hour after the race. 
Uh, yeah, maybe, but it also just made me maybe take my anger out on, on other things because <laughs> I don't want to take it out of my son. So it's, uh, yeah, being a, being a father has definitely changed me as a, as a person, but, uh, on the track, yeah, maybe a little bit more calm, um, not as hot headed, but, but, uh, also I want it more for some reason, whenever my kids are watching, my wife's are watching, like, I want to win more, you know, it's, it's, uh, so maybe it makes you a little bit more angry whenever things like that happen. <laughs> Well, going back to something that you said, when you were growing up, there was no social media. And also, you could say when you were growing up, there was no reality TV. And the reality TV that we did have was more science, educational stuff, and the occasional celebrity. But it wasn't really athletes at the beginning of reality TV. Survivor was just everyday people. So where I'm going with all that is what an athlete is expected to do and what plans the athlete has for life after being an athlete, very different now than in the past. Like when I grew up as an NBA diehard fan in the eighties, I can't tell you what business ventures most of my favorite players had from the eighties and nineties. You on the other hand, active on social media, great personality. We know a lot about you. Are you allowed to say what you're working on besides the champion racing career and rise and grind? Like, for example, is there an um, you think? Is there a coffee? Is there the CBD line, et cetera, that all athletes kind of have these days? I try to, you know, I try to be a little bit more. I don't know. I don't want to sell somebody a product just because my name's on it or push it on social media just because somebody gives me some money. If I ever do something like that, it's going to be a passion thing. You know, I'm, I'm big into woodworking. I have a lot of fun with that. So I have a little side business for that. And I'm always trying different things. You know, one, one good thing about, our sport is that we can, you know, we can go coach people for some pretty good money. So I like, I like coaching people, uh, you know, for the kids, we, we just do it for the love of it, but, but the adults that got money and want to spend money, like we do one-on-one -on -one coaching with them. So that's a good way for us to make some side money. And, and, you know, there's the family that I'm, I'm racing with now. They're actually out of New York as well. They, they own a dealership in New York city. And um, we're always trying to think of different, different business ideas uh, with, with these guys. And, and, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm happy with the team that I'm at now, which is, you know, I get into that into the episode is um, I feel like they actually care about me where in the past it's, you know, we race for manufacturers. Our jobs always win on Sunday, sell on Monday. You know, we win a race on Sunday, you sell a motorcycle on Monday. So um, that's that's the way I've always been raised. That's the media training that I've gotten growing up that I never really fit the mold of. And this family, this team um they just let me be me and and uh one of the things with that is that because we're so close and they get close to my family it's like they want to make sure that I'm good whenever racing is done which is hopefully 10 years down the road from now or even even longer but it's uh you know it's always something that we're talking about and, and trying to get ahead of you know you don't want to be the guy that's racing's over and now you're wow maybe you have a, a little nest egg saved up but you're also freaking out about what's in the future so I, I'm always trying to think of something but but uh my my squirrel brain kind of helps me leave one thing, pick up another thing really easy. So I'm sure we'll be all right. So tell me if I'm totally wrong on this, but it sounds like the race itself might be the least consuming of the whole thing because of the family obligations, all the business meetings, what you said about win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Sounds like the race itself is the most enjoyable part. Oh yeah. <laughs> the race is the fun part. I, uh, you know, it's all nerves and butterflies and fear and anger before, uh, whenever, whenever the shield goes down for a race, it's, it's a different story. Even, even riding, like I don't really enjoy riding. I enjoy racing. 
I enjoy rubbing elbows with people. I enjoy, you know, that, that fight on the track. Um, the only thing I could compare it to is a fight, you know, it's because that's what we're doing. We're going 200 miles an hour, bumping into each other, crashing. Um, and it's, to me, that's like a, it's my drug is, is the adrenaline side of things. So, uh, that's what I look forward to and and the rest of it, I can't stand. So it's, it's just those two races that we get on the weekends that, that really, uh, do it for me. Well, two quick questions and then I'll let you go. And the first one is athletes I find are the, are either the biggest music connoisseurs you ever meet or they hate music because they want to focus on the speed or the actual craft going on. Which one are you? Are you the all music all the time, except for this interview and the race or no music? Uh, I don't know. I'm a little confused with your question. Can you, can you ask it again or put it a different way for me? Okay, so when you're competing, I assume there's yeah. music no nope, nothing in there because you yeah. have to focus. And the same yeah. thing would be with NASCAR, that people associate, you know, being in the car with music, but they can't actually race to it. And they have to super pay attention, just like you. There's some sports you can pay attention gotcha, to. Gotcha, gotcha. And yeah, there's other sports where you could, you know, hide the earbuds in a helmet or it's okay. Like if you're running the New York city marathon, you probably have earbuds in cause it is boring yeah. to run 26 miles. Uh, <laughs> now for me, it's, I'd, I'd say for me, I'm, I'm a no music guy because to me, the, the music is the motorcycle and, and it's, you know, the sound of the wind and it's everything, you know, it's um, motorcycles to me are, and now that I have a son who's grown up around them, it's, every bike that he hears it's just like he locks in he freaks out today we're going for a walk and he's just trying to find the bike like where's the bike like he wants to stop and, and see where it is and I, I would say I'm like that like whenever the bike turns on that's that's like when I'm in the zone and and I'm feeling good and and uh yeah so definitely no music I, I've actually tried riding with music before in a in like a practice kind of scenario and mm -hmm. and it's just the most distracting thing ever to me i can't i can't focus i gotta hear my gears i gotta that we go off the sound of the motorcycle so much we'll be going 200 miles an hour and normally racers find you know signs on the track or marks on the ground that that's where i need to grab the brakes to be able to make it into this corner for me it's a right. sound thing when i when i hear the pitch of the motorcycle at a certain noise that's when i know i need to get on the brakes and so it's, uh, yeah, the sound of the bike is the most important thing to me. So you have good hearing. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the last question I have is what's when you're not busy with the racing, the business related to the racing, the family, obviously there's not a lot of time because you got to factor in the five to nine hours of sleep, et cetera. But what's the number two hobby outside of all this? Is it woodworking? Um, you know, for me, it's, it's hard to interact with fans at the races like I, I try to I have so much fun with it but when it's race time and race weekend there's so much stress and so much going on that it's like they don't get to see the real side of me mm -hmm. and so I was you know to me it was like a lucky thing that social media came around whenever uh, whenever it did because it it really made me become me I was able to interact with fans in a way that I wasn't able to at the track and that's the only time they see us is when we're at a live event and I feel like they don't get to see the real me. So, um, and this, this may sound like I was trying to put this in somehow with this interview, but, but only fans has really made that possible to where I can have my core group of fans. And it's not like some of the other social media sites where it's just anybody can come and see stuff. These are, you know, fans that really want to be 
you know, finding out what's going on behind the scenes and really understand what it takes to be a professional racer and, and that want to contribute to what you're doing because they know that we're putting our life on the line and that's their way of helping out, whether it's a dollar or $20 or just them sending a message, whatever it is. That's honestly one of my favorite things to do is interacting with fans on OnlyFans because it just, it kind of puts me in a different position where I understand their side of things and, and why they want to be a fan of the sport. And it's, you know, that's truly what I like doing. I like racing and I like, you know, in the off season, I like riding motorcycles on the street and doing cool videos and giving, you know, fans something that they want to see and, and interact with and, and have fun with. Well, to add to what you said before I let you go, OnlyFans is not attracting trolls. It's attracting the people that actually want to be there. So you're directly yeah. <laughs> with the people who know who you are and want to be there. That That's a good way to look at it. You know, I think uh, I, I've never thought about it that way, but, but um, yeah, it's, that's, it's, it's just been enjoyable. Whether, whether there's only a hundred guys on there that are like super hardcore into it, you know, maybe there's a few thousand that are kind of into it, but there's those, you know, that small group of really dedicated guys that would really show up and do anything you know, go, there's guys that follow me around to, you know, six, seven events out of the year and, and they just love motorcycles. It's not in a, a weird way. It's just, they just want to feel like they're part of it. And that platform really allows me to kind of make them feel that way. Well said. Well, Hey, thank you for your time. Congrats on the release of rising grind and looking forward to everything that's to come for me in the near future, Josh. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Tiffany, Ben, Matt, Lucia, pleasure to be speaking with all of you. And I'll throw the first one at Lucia. How are you, uh, part one and part two? What was your highlight on working on this great new show? Um, I'm good. Thank you for asking. I think my favorite part about the show was that, first of all, I didn't even ever expect to be doing anything like this. My little five-year-old brain never even crossed my mind then it happened one day and it was awesome and I loved Craig of the Creek it was a lot of fun and being able for just for people to like love Jessica and to connect with her and like her so much to where now she's getting the spotlight on her it just it was crazy to think like wow this is me I'm able to do this it's just it's been fun and crazy, but I love it. Yeah, not every character gets a spinoff, gets to have a long-term role like you have. So congratulations on that end. Now, Matt and Ben, I have a question. Before I ask you about this series, uh, I grew up with a certain individual named Jeff Rosenstock. And I'm wondering how you discovered oh, yeah? to be able to score a TV show when he was just a Scott Punk kid from Long Island. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um... Well, I, I'm a, a super big ska punk fan, um, and so I was just a huge fan of his music. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was he because he made he made such amazing, energetic music and made it all himself. I was like, oh, it would be a dream if this guy could do the score because I know he can do it, but if he would do it, and um, yeah, so thankful he did. It's been so awesome. Same so feelings, cool. Matt. Yeah, yeah. Ben's Ben's the Ben's 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 a ska boy, so <laughs> Ben brought Jeff to the table. But it was so exciting to 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 work with Jeff, and he 
the the range that he's uh he had to begin with and then he's like further developed like he's we're doing a craig of the creek movie and he's doing the score for that and it sounds incredible and so, so elevated uh yeah it's just uh he can do everything man he's and he's always got uh good vibes good vibes with that dude glad to hear that now tiffany you've been left out of this conversation and i apologize so first you'll get the how are you and the second oh, is was there a highlight for you in being showrunner, executive producer, and co-creator? That's a lot of job titles to have. So I'm not sure if you got to have any fun, but just curious. Um, I, I'm well, thank you. I hope you're doing good as well. Um, yeah. Highlight is, um, yes, and thank you for recognizing that that's quite a lot to yeah. carry at once. Um, but I, uh, I cannot... I cannot thank enough all of the wonderful people that came on to do this project with us. I, from Craig to Jessica, this incredible journey has taught me so much about being a friend to others, has taught me so much about being on a team, how much uh, we all do this together. This is a wide effort of everybody looking out for each other to reach this goal of creating a story that somebody might enjoy, but also the importance of um, caring for one another as individuals, because we are in this space together. And the friendships that I've made in this process is, I, it cannot be measured, the deep connections that I've made that I I cannot be more, I, I, I cannot say enough how thankful I am for that. Hmm. Well, Lucia, as a talent on this show and Craig of the Creek, What's the recording process like for you? Do you do everything in a week or do you do one episode at a time? So usually we might do like, it really, it really honestly depends. Sometimes we'll do one episode. Sometimes we might do two and then go back for new lines added to an episode or redo lines from an, a past episode We'll just go record it all in the closet. <laughs> Do you have a vocal booth or a recording set up at home? Because, hey, having multiple credits as a voiceover person, maybe it's time to have your own studio. So we would always drive out into the studio to go record. But then when COVID hit, um, they sent back the stuff we needed. And once we were able to go back, Mom just thought it would be a better idea instead of having to drive all the way out there, have me miss school, um, drive back in traffic, get home late. We could just keep it all at home. So we set up the mic, the mic, we set up the mic, we got the headphones and the little sound thingy in the mm -hmm. closet. We put blankets over for like sound. I don't know. I'm not a fancy tech person. <laughs> Yet. One day you can be a fancy person like that. Now, back to Ben and Matt here. When did you kind of know that Craig of the Creek was going to have staying power and be a cultural touchstone in a way? Because a lot of animated shows don't make it past the pilot series, let alone get merchandising or a follow-up movie. Oh. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's it's the first season we were just trying to just get through it, you know? And I think... Um, I'm not, you know, it's it's hard to say. I feel like we are always making the episodes 
weirdly in a bubble where we're kind of making them for the crew and making what excites us and what interests us and just hoping that people connect with it. And the fact that, you know, I think once we got to season three, that we did feel the confidence to kind of stretch out and try some different kinds of storytelling for season four, where we told an arc that spanned over a whole season and a half um, because we felt like the show had more legs. Um, but yeah, we usually we're just in our own world of making it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think getting, get it, getting uh, the opportunity to, cause they came pretty much at the same time, getting the opportunity to do the spinoff uh, for Jessica and getting to do the movie along with new Craig episodes. I mean, that was really like a huge uh, vote of confidence from the network that uh, we were doing something right. And we've, and, and the fact also that we've continued to be supported and get to do things even with um, some uh, changes at the network and stuff. And people are still uh, on board for our brand of cartoons uh, is uh, has, has been really nice. And it, you know, so I feel like that has really uh, cemented the show and all the work that the crew's done on it. So the closing thought I have before I let you go is, Ben and Matt, you have as many jobs as Tiffany. Yeah. We're all very busy. Uh, yeah. I mean, and Lucia's doing tech and uh, recording her voice. It takes, takes a lot to make a show. Well, hey, thank you all for your time and congratulations on this new series and keeping the Craig universe if we can call it a universe, I think we can, going and so much to look forward to as fans, you know? Thank cool. you so much. Thank you. Jody, how's your day going aside from talking to wrestling journalists? Uh, it's pretty good, you know, I have the day off, so I'm chilling with the dog, very happy. Well, can I start this off with a compliment and say, you have one of the coolest names in wrestling ever. Now, did you have that name <laughs> before you were in wrestling in other words was that a punk rock scene nickname that you had jody threat uh no well jody is my real name um yes. and yeah one of my friends just helped me come up with it. it's based on the the band minor threat yes and i like that band so uh yeah it literally was only a wrestling inspired uh name for me that's really cool to hear now i like that your merch or your swag, your logo has the homage to Minor Threat in the logo and all that. What was your entry into punk rock? Was it Minor Threat? Oh, no, no, no. It was uh, more local music. I can't even remember. Like maybe like a, a band called Riot 99, uh, which is like a Toronto-based band. And back in like, I want to say grade nine, I had like a, an older friend that brought me to like my first sort of punk rock show. And yeah. Yeah, the going to the punk rock shows thing is something that I started doing in high school and I didn't start going to independent wrestling shows until after college, probably. And you realize they're basically the same thing, the indie rock shows and the independent wrestling shows, or is at least, is it very different there in Ontario? No, very similar, very similar vibe for sure. Same energy. Same energy in a good way. So uh, you are one of the stars of Impact. How long did you have to keep it a secret that you were coming to Impact? Um probably like four months it was very challenging it was very challenging <laughs> i've never heard that before four months i usually hear well scott demore and i cut a, a really quick deal and in two days i was there four months 
four months we just sat on it like an egg just waiting for it to hatch <laughs> did, did you know what your first match was going to be for those four months absolutely not that was a surprise <laughs> wow that's fantastic so that's not the first time you've been on television of course coming to impact did you grow up watching tna impact uh funny enough uh growing up i did not watch wrestling at all kind of like you it was uh after university i uh i stumbled into a an indie show in toronto and uh it was in that meeting in that show that i realized this was like my my true love and i needed to proceed with uh becoming a wrestler <laughs> was that one of those kinds of shows where it's local talent and then one or two people you may have seen on tv before it was straight local talent like, I think I remember, um, like, the match in particular was, like, some sort of tag match. And I, I think, like, uh, this guy, Tarek, who's, like, an Ontario wrestler, and uh, Shane Saber were, like, in that match. And it was, like, they're, like, good friends of mine now, which is really funny. Um, yeah, but, like, definitely, like, Ontario indie guys that everyone knew in Ontario. Um, yeah. That's actually admirable that you saw wrestling kind of at its lowest. I'm not saying that in a mean way, but you saw For it sure. in the least glamorous kind of way. And you went, I love this. Whereas most people kind of see it at its most glamorous, biggest stages. And that's why they want to go to it. I wonder if it's like, like you kind of mentioned that punk rock energy that I was super like familiar and comfortable with. I wonder if that has to to do with it because like bigger, obviously TV shows are a little less punk rock. However, I would argue that impact is kind of punk rock. Love oh, it. Super. Yeah. It is, uh, it is super punk rock because uh, everyone, uh, regardless of what happens on, on camera, everyone gets along in impact for starters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Outro cast. Hey yo, check one two. This is Flavor Flav, and I don't disappear fast. Cause right now you are watching the Paltrow cast. Outro cast.